Because of that, I did it this week the opposite way, and it totally skewed the way I watched this episode. But what I did this week is that I was able to read the chapter from the book about this episode and then watch the episode, which gave me a very different take on what I, A, thought the episode was going to be, and then what the episode had ended up being. That's where we're going in this week's episode. But before we do, let me get away with the introductions. As always, my name is Matt. Welcome to the Brothers Trek About. I'm sitting here in Austin, and over there on planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. Yes, they are. Well, here we are. We're talking this week about Friday's Child, a very interesting and weird uh, episode, at least from my vantage point. So many things that we'll get to talking about. Well, what uh, what pre notes do you have about this episode? If well, you have any. the first thing that I hear when I hear the title "Friday's Child" is that old nursery, you know, rhyme. Tuesday's child is full of grace. Wednesday's child is full of woe. Thursday's child has far to go, and uh, Friday's child is full of. Friday's child is loving and giving. So you're expecting a kind of you know, warm episode. You find out right away that you have a pregnant mother. And <laughs> you're like <laughs> waiting for the Friday's child. <laughs> you're not getting it because this is a warrior culture where everybody wants to fight and the mother doesn't want the child. <laughs> It was funny because I didn't even know where the title came from, so I'm glad you answered that question. But you're totally right. It makes absolutely no sense in regards to this episode, <laughs> it seems like. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess kind of the ending is warming and loving. Yeah. And you have a nice ending. But who knows when, what, you know, that child goes on to become as well. You know what I mean? And this weird warlike, <laughs> you know, society. And then you find out that her mom... But her mom's not dead, right? Her mom's the mom's not no. dead at the end of the episode. No, she lives. So that was so that was something that was supposed to happen in the original writing of this episode. And so DC's Fontana original take on this script was about a woman living in a male-dominated society, which we get in this episode, uh, but then becomes something about a woman playing behind the scenes, manipulating men to ensure that she gets to continue living. Because in the original version of this script, they usually kill the mother of the new leader to make way for a new person in the tribe, or they always kill them. I don't remember how it works out. But, uh, you know, she's a very Lady Macbeth type. Uh, she's changing sides and using the two wanton leaders against each other so that she can live no matter what happens. So imagine reading that, right? This very interesting, very, you know, thoughtful, very manipulative woman, you know? And plus you got Julie Newmar, who you know is in it. So you're like, okay, well, this could be a really, like, 
fun, dark-ish episode that we're going to get. And then you <laughs> watch this episode and you're like, wait, we're finding out in a captain's log that she doesn't want the baby. Like there's not even a scene about that. Why doesn't she want the baby? That's like totally unmotivated. You know, at least in DC's original script, you're like, oh, well, I understand, you know, she's trying to, you know, make a name for herself. She's trying to show that women can be as powerful as men. And they, you know, and then we get this script, which is like, she doesn't even talk like, you know, the first like half of the show, it seems like. I always kind of felt like she really loved the first tier. And so in the other tier, I mean, you can imagine that situation. You're married to somebody, you're, you're having a child, even if it's in the old arranged marriages way, where it's like, uh, do you love me? Do I want? Speaking of Fiddler. That's right. You know, where, the, where you know, they, they love each other in a way that's not necessarily romantic, and I was drawn to you for the first, but you know, you're, you're a good husband, and and you know a, a good tear, and so she was, and then this guy comes along and kills your husband, and claims you as like part of the prize. Right. I could understand where you'd be like, uh, "Oh, I want no part of this." <laughs> so well, we'll I, I definitely go ahead. I, I, I saw it in that light. Yeah, but I may have well, been we'll filling definitely... in some blanks. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like that's what's missing a, a lot in this episode is is the uh, uh, the motivations of of. I think everybody else is pretty clear. I just feel like hers are what's really like got pushed to the wayside, and yet she's supposed to be the centralist character. You know what I mean? Right. I mean it, it, that's one of those things that I feel like it's lost in the rewrite because you know. So DC writes the script again the way I described it earlier. And then, you know, Gene Roddenberry takes it over and is like, nope, nope, this lady wants to be a mommy. You know, like she has the baby and realizes, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be forever and then is willing to sacrifice herself. Like, you know, that's the way Roddenberry writes it. Of course, that's not how, you know, DC Fontana writes it. Which, of course, is the exact opposite of the way DC Fontana wants to write it, right? Because she's writing it about a woman who doesn't want the kid, is willing to sacrifice the kid, will kill the kid. I forgot that part in the earlier part. But yeah, she's willing to kill the kid to continue on living, right? So this other guy can be the, the leader of the tribe. And then here comes Roddenberry. He's like, nope, nope. Every woman wants to have a baby. Every woman wants to be a mother. It's, so this is the way we're going to write it, which, of course, again, is almost offensive to DC. So I'm going to go quote her right now. She said, my feeling was that not all women are mommies. Some women do not like their children. Some women do not want to have their children. Some women abuse their children. And this is a real, uh, a real fact to me. I knew that. And I wanted to suddenly bring it out. Not that you can beat up a kid on screen, but that, you know, Aline was willing to sacrifice the child for her own life. She wanted to show a selfish woman, which... Again, in this like new version of this that Roddenberry writes, that's not what we get at all. And to a point, you know, as we've discussed before, maybe that's not Star Trek. You know, maybe Roddenberry's vision is the pure vision of what Star Trek is supposed to be. Although it's always possible in Star Trek to have people that you beam down and encounter be totally not Star Trek. And what you're supposed to do is 
kind of bring them around by the edge by the end of the episode, you know, at least a, a little bit. And so right. I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with encountering the kind of, oh, you are totally contra the values of Star Trek at the beginning. And uh -huh. even, if, even if you go away in which that person hasn't moved very far, our crew should be able to affirm Star Trek values. And then you're like, okay, well, you know, all is right in the world. And then they go off and new episode. Yeah. But, but making I'm, making her be, you know, an exemplar of uh, Roddenberry's utopian future seems unnecessary. Yes. Roddenberry also asked that the Federation interests not be limited to uh, mining rights. In uh, future drafts, Kirk also offers to share knowledge and medicines and other things that's a uh, much more uh, Federation-themed Right, uh, you know that definitely fits more into the idea of the utopia. But interesting, if we think about, because who are these people, right? I mean, kind of in the way that they speak, and kind of in the way that they're like, you know, the honor and everything that happens in this, you know, the it, this feels sort of Native American, right? Like, is may, maybe right. where they got the idea for this tribe and whatever else. <clears throat> so, where does the prime directive, which I know isn't a th quite a thing yet in the in the show? But where does that fall into this series, you know? I guess that's another story, you know, where like some ship accidentally crash lands on the planet and now they know that there are, you know, people out there or whatever. But right. it just seems like it's a quite a primitive planet to be suddenly bringing in, you know, a bunch of mechanized machines to come in and do mining rights. Right. Yeah, so there's something that we don't know, right? Like, why is this planet in contention the way it is? Maybe it was and, the Klingons' fault. Yeah, so, yeah, the Klingons could have have interacted with them for quite some time, not realizing that they were the valuable rocks or whatever. Or maybe they were trading for rocks in another part of the world or... Right. You know, whatever. Or maybe there had been, as you say, some kind of accidental first contact, and now, well, the cat's out of the bag. But I, it, you do feel like this needs to be explained. Yeah, exactly. You know, we do get a fairly, it'll get this briefing at the beginning in which McCoy, who's been there. Yeah, for two months. Is, yeah, is talking about what it's like. And at no point is there an explanation for why is this, I don't know, Bronze Age culture, whatever they are. Yeah. You know, interacting with Starfleet, because that does seem like it's a prime director problem. Yeah. I think you're right. I think part of it's that they hadn't really fleshed out the whole doctrine of the prime directive enough to go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> What's now we're going to say something about this. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, we also. Early. Yeah, we also. Yeah, yeah, early, early phenomenon. Yeah. I think we also get this interesting thing of we get this frequent juxtaposition the Federation and the honorable warrior culture. So uh -huh. here. McCoy goes on about how they're honest and, you know, very, you know, honor bound and lots of rules and so forth, taboos. And we see so many of these honor bound. I mean, that's ultimately what they do with the Andorians. Famously, the Klingons are the honorable warrior society. 
you know, to a certain extent, especially the early Romulans, uh, not quite as much the later ones, very honorable warrior societies. It's funny that we just keep encountering them over and over again. They, they seem to be a popular end point for galactic history. So once uh, uh, DC Fontana delivered her second draft, which was still um, much of uh, what I said earlier the, uh, the original story was, Robert Justman had this to say about the script. I must say at this time that I dislike the Eileen character as a person immensely. Our audiences are also going to dislike her immensely and wonder why our heroes keep lugging her along with them, which is apparent that there is no gratitude returned for what they do. I think perhaps we are making a mistake in having her portrayed as a rat fink. I think we want to empathize with her, not hate her. Also at the end of the script, when we find out Aline is motivated by the fact that she was having an affair with some other fellow, how come she let him touch her when she was already married to a car? That seems like it's very inconsistent in her thinking. Which of course is just what DC Fontana is going for, except that of course, Justman thinks that men and women alike will dislike her intensely and the point of the story will get lost. So in uh, DC Fontana's version of the story, the unfaithful and conniving Eileen hates her baby so intensely that after escaping from Kirk McCoy and Spock, Kirk and company are captured while attempting to rescue the infant. In the end, Eileen actually outfoxes herself and is executed for committing adultery. So again, that was the way the original ending was going to go on that. Much different from uh, what ends up on screen. Right. Uh, in this original version, there were no Klingons on the planet. So that was the thing. Uh, they were added by Roddenberry. Uh, McCoy had never previously been to the planet. Mob is also uh, a car's brother and is completely ruthless. Besides killing his older brother, Mob has uh, Akar's teenage son murdered. So that's another thing that happens. At the end of the story, Mob is executed for trees for treason, and it is learned that he is secretly negotiating with the Klingons all along. As for Aline's baby, he is left to be raised by a grandfather uh, until old enough to ru uh, rule all of the tribes. And that's definitely different. Because then uh, Roddenberry gets it, and you know he adds all sorts of things. He adds the Klingons. Uh, McCoy now has been there before. Uh, we get the addition of Chekhov into the story. He wasn't there before. Plus, we get this more positive theme that comes at the end. But as we know, DC knows the rules. She knows how TV works, how they're going to be written, how things are going to change. Doesn't mean she feels any better about it. I didn't like the new tack it took on the woman played by Julie Newmar. I wanted her to be pretty ruthless. I wanted her at the end ready to sell her child for her own life, to sacrifice the child. Because you didn't see that kind of woman on television. And Jean wanted the traditional woman has baby, loves baby, and automatically, no questions asked, will do anything for the child. So all the trappings were there, the basic adventure was there, the culture and the tribe pretty much stayed the same. The only thing that didn't was the change in the lead character. It almost seems, you know, as you say, her motivations are so absent from the story. It almost seems that instead of just rewriting it, they needed to totally go back to the drawing board. So uh, Roddenberry in the 1980s had this to say about this particular episode. Television, if used properly, he says, is a wonderful tool not only uh, for education, but as examples of uh, humanitarian values. 
literature has always been a teacher and a, as a means of conveying lessons. Obviously, we know this because, he, you know, he's talked about a hornblower and those stories of the past. He goes on to say, and that was Star Trek by design. Dorothy's sto story for that one attempted to teach the importance of good character and good conduct by showing the negative results of bad characters and bad conduct. And it is certainly one road to take in telling a morality play. I preferred for Star Trek, and with that story in particular, to match a different road in communicating that message. Now, no writer likes to be written, but I stand by the choices I made on that one, and I think that the show still works. So he even understands, he's like, yeah, I understand the idea that she was trying to get across there. That's just not my way of doing it for Star Trek. I don't want to show the bad guy. I don't even want to show the bad guy doing bad things, even if he ends up doing bad things. That's kind of what he makes it sound like. Yeah. And I, I think that Roddenberry does kind of drink his own Kool-Aid <laughs> at some point during the 80s. It's why we end up with, you know, the kind of initial starting point of Next Generation that we do where everyone seems a little too chamomile tea. Uh-huh. And uh, you encounter a very primitive people it just seems unreasonable to go well we can't tell this story because everyone's got to be utopian Roddenberry never liked the humor right that coon added to the scripts which is by the way coon went back and did one more pass on this after Roddenberry got a hold of it which you is where all are gonna be insufferable exactly <laughs> yes uchi wuchi coochie coo look it up in linguistics so, yeah, all of that stuff was added by Kuhn. He did the final pass on that episode. But it's just interesting that Roddenberry, which, again, we see in a lot of season one of, of Next Generation, it's not nearly as, like, fun as it becomes, you know, once we get to the third season, for sure. It's wacky because you hear these crew stories, the cast stories from, from Next Generation cast, and they're pranksters and jokesters from day one, making yep. Patrick Stewart all irritated that, you're not taking the work seriously. Right. If ever there was a cast where you could have had some levity, that certainly would have been the cast. And they, they do eventually. They figure it out. Yep. But I wonder to what extent they had to figure it out by just watching these these actors and going, you know, Frakes could really deliver a line like, you know, something like this, and it'd be funny. Yeah. And, you know... Crusher could say this and it would be, you know, funny. And they like have to figure it out by watching the cast because eventually they do get stuff that I feel like is suitable for the actors. They're not, you know, it's not forced. It's, it works well because it's natural. Yeah. But then you see them in convention or, you know, on videos and you're like, oh, they're way funnier, <laughs> you know, in person than they are. <laughs> yeah. Star Trek characters. <clears throat> Now, the same thing is true with Shatner, right? I mean, Shatner's yeah. a goofball dialed to 11. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've all seen Rocket Man. We know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Joseph Peavney is back in the director's chair for his second time in this brand new season. So, uh, his first task was to sit down with uh, Joe D'Augusto and uh, sit down and figure out who, the, uh, who they were going to cast in all these roles. So uh, first person to talk about, obviously, is Julie Newmar, right, as uh, Eileen, most notably known 
as Catwoman from the uh, Adam West Batman series. Uh, although, you know, there were uh, two other women who also got that privilege to be that same character as well. Uh, she got her big break by uh, being in uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. And then uh, she also played uh, Stupefying Jones in Little Abner. <laughs> Which is kind of a sexy, uh, you know, a sexy role, too. Then she got her own TV series opposite Bob Cummings as a sexy robot in a show called My Living Doll. <laughs> that put her uh, also on the cover of TV Guide, which is not surprising. Obviously, then in 66 and 67, she played Catwoman. Uh, James Dewan said this about Julie Newmar. It's an offbeat piece of casting. You know, a nine months pregnant woman having Julie Newmar, who was always very aggressively proud of her figure. <laughs> I like that he calls it aggressively proud of her figure. That makes me laugh. Uh, Newmar's explanation to uh, the author, Osborne, said this. I did it because they asked me and there was an aura of sincerity about them and to the character. I'm not a Star Trek fan. I'm a ballet dancer. I'm in the arts. Uh, my world and my interests are quite different than that of science, science fiction. But I know that when I read something, if it's worthwhile or not, I know that in the first few pages. Good writing is what always saves a show. The heart of any show is in the writing. We had it in Batman, and we had it here with Star Trek as well. So obviously, she has a lot of nice things to say about this uh, episode. We also have uh, uh, Tigger Tig Andrews who plays Cross the Klingon. He was a uh, friend of Shatner's. And uh, once Shatner got a look at the storyline, he uh, went to uh, John D'Agusta and said, uh, hey, uh, I got this guy who might be perfect for this. And so sure enough, he then goes on to, he goes on to play in the Mod Squad with Peggy Lipton. And then uh, there was Michael Dante. He plays uh, Ma'ab. He was 36 years old at the time and he stood 6'2". So there's supposed to be this whole planet of giants, right? Well, much like the giants that we were supposed to see in Galileo 7, it doesn't quite work. I mean, they get these guys who are all like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, but, you know, <clears throat> McCoy's like, yeah, some of these guys get up to like 7'2", seven, seven, and I'm like, they never quite feel that tall, you know? And, you know, it's not that hard to film that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? In which... Yeah, they don't, do, they don't even do a lot of the low angles. Yeah, yeah. you do... Some angles you do some platforms and but we don't we don't get that it's just like people yep i know just like these regular looking guys and it's funny because the klingon's actually kind of a short guy yeah exactly <laughs> so uh friday's child also as we will find out provides scotty with his fourth turn his second in a row if we take cat's paw first uh at running the bridge during kirk's absence Dewan said, I thought that I ran the ship beautifully, to tell you the truth. It was a nice change of pace, although I thought Scotty's best place was in the engine room. So you get this nice bit, which feels like the Kobayashi Maru, right? Right. Klingons are out there somewhere. Oh, we got a distress call. We go investigate. And then suddenly, wait, it's not there. There's a Klingon ship. You know, let's, let's go that way. So, I mean, there's a reason that, the, that it feels like if you were going to invent a test, you would have the Klingons do a fake distress call. Oh, help us, help us. Right. Because apparently they like that tactic. So Michael Dante, uh, who plays Mob, as I said, 
He uh, has this to say about working at Vasquez Rocks. Man, it was hot. <laughs> so apparently this, uh, it was a very hot summer and they were shooting at like 110, 115 degrees out there. So then he tells a story when uh, Julie Newmar and Michael Peevney get into a bit of a row. Julie Newmar was a method actor. She liked to know her motivation. You know, it's an actor's thing. Why would I cross over here, though? If I'm supposed to be standing up to him, why would I cross away from him? It's the kind of thing that you learn when you're an actor. It's, uh, you know, in real life, if you were going at somebody, right, you're not going to cross away from them, you know, unless it was some kind of tactic. So that's what it came down to in this fight. Peevney only cared about what the shot looked like, and she wanted to know her motivation, to which he said, motivation, motivation. I need you standing here right after that line. So uh, Michael Dante turns to Julie Newmar and says, hey, uh, it's hot out here. This costume I'm wearing has little breathability, and if we don't get this take soon, I'm literally going to roast in this costume. <laughs> so luckily, Julie Newmar took it all in stride, and uh, they got out of there pretty quickly. But Julie Newmar tells Osborne in the book, you know, I'd been on stage with members of the actor studio, with Marlon Brando, and all of these, you know, artists, but TV is a totally different dog. It's all about the haste. I like being able to work between the different art forms, stage, film, and TV. They all have their different demands and abuses in the way that you work. But you get used to it, she said, so that's pretty nice. They were also having problems, too, with the uh, technical equipment. The cameras were getting overheated, so they had to like literally like ice the cameras. They'd put a blanket on top and then put an ice pack on top of the blanket so the equipment wouldn't clam up. And nobody was moving at like normal speed. Everybody's kind of moving a little sluggishly. And actually after reading that and then watching the episode, you can even tell that some of the actors are not quite moving up to full speed. They look a little worn down. Now that yeah. we Go some ahead. of those uh, in the past that we've talked about, like in November. Yeah. I can totally imagine it's much nicer. Maybe some brisk mornings getting out there in November. Yeah. But Trying to do this in the summer? That's madness. Yeah. And he said it was even worse because they were in like a valley where they were shooting. And so no air was blowing through it at all. So it was just like hot after hot after hot and, you know, with very little relief. So it's that's crazy. Just part of what makes Southern California, Southern California. So you've got this you know, range of mountains right there at the coast and it kind of traps the air. It's why yeah. it doesn't rain because, you know, you think right by, there by the ocean, the Pacific. You know, yeah. wind should be moving from west to east. Why isn't it blowing in a bunch of rain? And it's because it gets trapped by the mountains and the rain can't get in inland to rain on the peoples. Right. Unlike, say, in planet Houston. <laughs> Where sometimes you get too much rain. We do get a lot of rain. They also had a, a problem, too, when they were shooting in the tents, you know, uh, all those tent scenes. Jerry Finderman had never had to light inside a tent before. And so uh, he learned a bit of a lesson about that, trying to light these. Uh, while they're not awful, <clears throat> according to the author of the book, he says that resulting in a mandate from the writer's room, no more tent scenes ever. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all I got in the uh, behind the scenes stuff. You're ready to, uh, I say, uh, you know, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. 
So uh, we start off with this opening shot of the Enterprise coming to a clearly a Class N planet. It seems like there's a lot of water compared to the amount of continents, but that's okay. We get a uh, briefing from McCoy. McCoy, of all people, giving us a briefing about a uh, planetoid. Uh, he's, we find out that he had spent like two months on the planet, but uh, he said that they left because they just didn't seem interested in hospitals or med medication. Only the strong survive, he says, and that they average seven feet in height. So uh, they beam down to the planet. Bones gives them the, you know, the typical greeting. We come with open hearts and hands. And then uh, our stupid uh, red shirt security guy standing behind Kirk pulls a phaser so fast and seeing a Klingon that he gets pelted with one of the boomerang weapons that the uh, tribe uses. Something that Bones said could be just as deadly as a phaser. Opening credits. Well, dead is dead. <laughs> no matter what kills you. That's right. I mean, you know, you're going to hit a guy with a knife in the chest. You know, that sounds like it's going to kill a guy. You don't, you don't need to have, like, the knife do weird stuff. It's a vibro right. knife. It spreads out inside the chest. That <laughs> is dead, you know? Who cares? He's dead. So back at it, I'm watching the episode and the captain's log just sort of washes over me because it's full of a bunch of like fake words and techno battle, techno babble, techno babble, still a better name for this podcast than the brothers Trek, but, and we get to the end of the log and I realize that I have no idea what he just said. And I'm trying to picture people in the 60s listening to this log and being a bit like, huh? And I was still like, huh? And I'm well-versed in technobabble. So, I went back to listen to it again. Here's a better recap for you. Now that I understand it. Captain's log. Stardate 3497.2. We're orbiting Capellan 4. We find out that there's a precious mineral called Topaline that just happens to exist underneath the surface of this planet by the crap ton. Colonies across the Federation need this precious Topaline for their life support systems. They are here to make an agreement, but they find out that there are Klingons here. Dun, dun, dun. So uh, when we get back to the planet, sure enough, the red shirt is so dead. Kirk is pissed at the Klingons and the and at the uh, Capellians. He says he was young and inexperienced. We find that the Klingon has given up his gun, and Ma'ab asks Kirk to do the same. Kirk asks if he can call the ship first, be you know, and let them know what's what. But the Klingon then comes back with what? Lay an attack against the village? <laughs> it is as I have told you, Ma'ab. Oh ho ho! Well. It appears that the Klingons have an upper hand, and they've been putting worms in the Capellian's ears. Bone says, the Klingons are our sworn enemy. You can't let them stay here. We know nothing other than he too offers valuable things for our rocks. And he has given up his guns and communicators. Will you do the same? But Kirk, stuck, can do nothing but hand over their weapons and communicators. They keep their word, scrupulously, he says. He gets upset with McCoy, who's just giving him the briefing. He tries to figure out again, why did the young man have to die? He saw an enemy, he pulled a gun! 
He pulled a gun on one of their guests, says Bones. He looked up. He saw an enemy. He did the rash, instinctive thing and tried to defend himself. What are the Klingons doing here? A good question. Back on the ship, Chekhov sees another ship coming into sensor range. Back on the Enterprise, Chekhov sees another ship approaching, but it's staying far away. So back on the planet, Kirk apologizes for his uh, his outburst to McCoy a little bit earlier when he was defending the red shirt, you know? And then Spock steps in for what seems like no reason and says, Inefficient, however. Emotion, Captain. Yes, you're quite right, Mr. Spock. Inefficient. And illogical. It's like three lines of filler that have no bearing on the rest of the episode, it feels like. It's weird. And then, out of nowhere, a woman, dressed as Jeannie from I Dream of Jeannie, walks in with a bowl of fruit, sits down, and then you, kneels sir. before Kirk. So then Bone says, well, you have made a gesture of goodwill by lying down your weapons. So this is theirs back. Okay, so then this is all, this is all finding Gandhi? Perfect. So then the genie grabs some fruit and hands it to, to Kirk, who's about to take it. But then Bones jumps up and is like, hey, don't do that. By taking their fruit, you're looking for a fight. Well, how was I supposed to know that was going to happen? Well, then Bones, what was all this before about it being a goodwill gesture and stuff? I don't know. I'm confused. So it's, it's fun to have the, this culture is really different and you need a guide. We were uh, talking in Cat's Paw about having a survey in which your navigator and your chief engineer are doing the planetary survey rather than, say, a geologist and so forth. Right. But this is how you get a senior crew with a, a bunch of varied experiences, is they are forced to do things out of their wheelhouse to you know do some planetary surveys and know some some alien cultures so that later on, they're not all just like, well, I don't know. What do you say, Mr. Expert? Okay, Mr. Expert. Thank you for your two lines. Now, please go back to where you came from. That's right. Deck nine. We, uh, they, they go from one tent into another. Here we meet uh, Tier Akar. We find out he is the leader of the 10 tribes. I want to talk a minute about the naming conventions of, of, of some of these characters, because this is not the first episode where I'm like, I hear their name said. And while I will recognize it throughout the episode, if you were to ask me after the episode what their names were, I would be right. like, I have, I, have no, I have no idea, no idea what their names are. And then in this case, we have it even weirder because we don't know that Tier or Tiar is their like leader, right? So, you know, so then he introduces himself as Tierra Carr. And you're like, okay, is, are, is that like, is that your name? Are you like Bob Jones? You know, is that like, yeah. Yeah. is it two names? I don't, I don't know what it's supposed to be. So it's a real problem I have. Now, admittedly, this is also part of the problem I have with like reading a lot of like fantasy books. This is because, you know, these people have either really long names or sometimes they're called three different names or it's like, I, it's these names don't mean anything to me. It's just so hard to keep. They can be like, you know, they get you get these weird fantasy names, right? Where it's like, this is so clearly a made-up name. 
It doesn't yeah. feel like an organic name that like Maab here and yeah. uh, and a car or a car. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, so that was my thought on names. So then we get Elian, who is uh, married apparently to TR. As the old man puts it, yes, she's uh, giving the old man a new leader for the tribes. I'm like, well, that's weird. Thank you. Kirk introduces himself and then uh, right away protests the killing of his crewman. Tier Akbar says, was it not his privilege to die for you? Sounds very Klingon-like, I thought. And then Ma'ab says, oh, well, isn't it better that we have uh, two people now bidding on the rocks? Uh, two is better than one. Bones then, uh, using their language, their way of speaking, basically calls the Klingons a liar by saying, we do not hear the Klingons. But then the Klingon is then allowed to speak. And uh, he says, don't worry, we feel like you do. The sick should die. You know, the survival of the fittest, that's always better. But then Kirk, much like we heard in, um, what was the last episode we saw the Klingons in, season one? Where they were... The Organians? Yes. Yeah, I think it was that episode. So much like there, we hear about how the Klingons, they don't let you keep your planet. They take it over as theirs. They basically say, okay, all of this is ours now. It all belongs to the Klingon Empire. Thank you. So Kirk yeah. reiterates this now to these people here. And uh, he says, we will offer to keep your planet yours. Bob decides uh, he's not going to work with the Earthmen. But now uh, Cartier must decide whether he's going to fight Ma'ab for the rights to this decision or not. Back to the ship, we got Chekhov. He's keeping a watchful eye on the Klingon ship. Then Uhura hears a distress call from a vessel. Uh oh. So then we go back to the planet here, right? And this fight has just broken out of nowhere, right? We don't even know what's going on. There's just this fight all of a sudden happen happening. Kirk and, and the crew finds uh, whatever his name, Crab, the Klingon in the tent, and he's looking for his communicator. Then they fight, and Kirk subdues him, but only as Ma'ab walks in. Aka'ar is dead. Ma'ab is in charge. Oh, well, that's not good news for our, uh, for our crewmen. The Klingon then asks to kill Kirk, but Kirk says, uh, hey, instead, why don't you let me uh, fight the Klingon? That'll be something for your uh, amusement. Sometimes my notes are funny. Uh, <laughs> I wrote, uh, I wrote, Ma'ab starts to take a shine to that there Kirk boy. <laughs> I'm sure I was thinking about that in some kind of accent. Taking a shine into that there Kirk boy. But uh, the Klingon says, but we had a deal. And Ma'ab says, well, that too might change. Back to the ship. We find out that the SS Deidre is under attack from a Klingon vessel. So we go back to the tent and we are like moments from where we left off. We, we have Kirk looking at Ma'ab saying, hey, I'll fight this Klingon. Let me fight this Klingon. Eileen walks in. She trips, falls into the fire. She burns her hand. Kirk goes to touch her hand to take a look at it, but Spock warms him off. She then says, she must die. One of Ma'ab's men has no problem helping her with this. Takes out his sword and is about to kill her right there, but Kirk won't let it happen. Grabbing her by the hand, throwing her aside, and then kicks the man with the sword, and now another fight breaks out. No man may, may touch the wife of a tear, we find out. Uh, Elian says, Oh, well, he laid his hands upon me. It is my right to see him die. 
okay, so now we're in bad news, right? Because Tier's wife says that, hey, we should, well, we should watch Kirk die. All right, fine. We go back to the ship. On the ship, they cannot get a hold of Kirk or Spock. Uh-oh, this is, this is a problem. Scott then hears the distress call again. He then decides that we got to go save the convoy. Uhura asks, but what about the captain? Interestingly, uh, when Scotty gives the order to, to stop looking for the the, the the transport ship and go back to the planet, she's then like, but wait, what if it's for real? <laughs> yeah, but what if it's true? You're like, make up your mind. You want to save the captain? You want to not save the captain? What's going on here? It's, it's almost like they give, they want somebody to go, but wait, we're changing direction. I'd like to lampshade this yes. change direction. And they gave both of them to Ohura, even though in hindsight, you're kind of like, is she just opposed to any kind of change of direction? <laughs> As opposed <laughs> to saying something like, oh, good, we're going back to save the captain. Which would make more sense. Given what she said earlier. Scott says that it is their duty to save the convoy. Commercial. Back at it, we get Scott's log this time. He kind of catches up on what's been happening. And uh, he also says, and the fact is, he's worried about the captain since they haven't been able to get a hold of him. So we're back in another tent. The crew is just sitting there. They look bored. And this is uh, the, uh, another scene where we feel like we missed something. So the crew is just sitting there, and Aline is there? I mean, what's she doing there? Doesn't she want Kirk dead? Shouldn't they have taken her to her own tent? And she, isn't... Maybe she wants to keep her, her eye on He's supposed to fight the Klingon? <laughs> anyway. Spocking to uh, the Klingon ship. If there's a Klingon ship that might be keeping Scott busy and why they have not been down to check on the crew. Bone says then, uh, hey, Captain, no matter what uh, she says or what happens... I'm going to fix Elian's arm. And then Kirk's like, at that same moment, gets a plan. And he's like, yeah, you should go fix her arm no matter what anybody does. So then Bones grabs her arm. And just as he does, Kirk attacks the guard, attacks and takes out the guards with Spock's help. Then they escape with the girl. I Cut like how no matter scene. what unspoken attack plan Kirk comes up with, Spock is right there to like back him up. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you, you can kind of imagine, let's say, Riker and Worf just doing stuff on the holodeck all the time so that they really get to know what the other guy's doing and like how to back him up. If he goes left, you know, here's what it probably means and you could do this or that. It's, it's like they're doing that on the original series holodeck, which we find out exists during the animated series. So uh, then we cut to the scene outside of uh, one side of the tent anyway. Ma'ab is just sitting there, like just staring ahead at nothing. Just like hanging out there, you know? He's not talking about a hunt with the Klingon or, you know, what it's like to kill a, a, a gunkater or anything, you know? They're just uh, hanging out on the front porch, you know, drinking some Bartles and James or something. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> but he is just, he's just sitting there. Staring into space. And then the, so then uh, Crab, the Klingon, decides he's going to go uh, look into the tent. But Mob calls him back. He says, there is no, no interest in there for you, Klingon. I like how so they the say Klingon. Klingon. Make a what do you mean? 
The Capellans have an interesting pronunciation of the word Klingon. What do they say? Do you know? I missed it. Uh, so I'm going to find the Julie Newmar. Well, so Julie Newmar calls them Klingons. Yeah, there you go. But not only that, but uh, Chekhov does as well. He calls him a Klingon. It's like G-E-N or something. Oh, yeah, the old Klingons. I love the Klingons. <laughs> so uh, the Klingon asks for his weapon back again. Mob says no again. Now we're back on the ship. They are in the spot in space where the convoy is supposed to be. But guess what? There is nothing there. We cut back to the planet, and now we're back at Vasquez Rocks again. We find out, and oh, so, so this is another thing that bothered me, because again, I knew the story, and I knew that the point of the story was to be that Elion doesn't want to have her unborn child, right? Right. But this important piece of information to the plot, we find out in a supplemental from Kirk, right? There's no scene of, Ilian, which they could have done right here. There's no scene of Ilian explaining to, you know, her motivation of like why she doesn't want the kid and what it's going to mean if, you know, it's like they just tossed off this piece of information as right. opposed to just saying like, I want to, I want it because I want to live longer or uh, I don't want Ma'ab to be the, the leader and, you know, kill my, although she doesn't want the son anyway, what does she care if, kill, care if Maud kills it? But there's like no reason for her not wanting to have the kid. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you've totally got to fill one in from your own stuff. Right. And, and really she could say almost anything and you'd be like, oh, okay. You know, she could allude to complex tribal politics or I'm from this clan and, you know, I don't want to raise the tear of, of this other clan and, You'd be like, whatever, I don't understand your, your, you know, tribal politics, but okay. But instead we get nothing. Then Bones has a scuffle here with Eliane. Like she sits down for a minute and he's like trying to make sure that she's not going to have the baby soon. He demands to fix her arm and then she finally relents and he fixes her arm. Kirk then sees Maab's men coming to find them. Then the scuffle with Bones and Elian continues. She slaps him, so he slaps her back. Boom. And then goes back to feeling her stomach. He says the baby could come at any time. She says, how would you know this by just touching me? There are elders in my, in my tribe who don't understand this. And he's like, because I'm a doctor. That's why. It's basically. <laughs> yeah, this is like the most non-explanation explanation. Yeah, exactly. So uh, awed by his ability to know, uh, she sort of takes his hand and starts caressing it. Then Spock walks up and gives him this look, like, <laughs> and then, and then uh, Bones like quickly pulls his hand away. Spock moves on. He meets up with Kirk, and they then decide to uh, create an avalanche using the sonic emitters of their communicators. Okay. I guess that's a thing they can do. Uh, I mean, I guess it makes sense. If you think about it, like they, they could lose their phasers all the time, but maybe their communicators might not be considered a weapon. And so there's some kind of yeah. sonic emitter on it for that reason. Who knows? Anyway, the avalanche happens. I think mostly it was invented for this one use and we'll never see it again. What? No, <laughs> they don't do that in the original series. That's ridiculous. <laughs> 
You notice though, when they do that on Next Generation, uh -huh. it's always like, it's always like, you know, oh, well, we have to put these like four things together to make it happen, you know. Uh, right. I've got to cross the, uh, the, the uh, deflector dish with the antimatter thing to create this thing that it, you will never see again because because in the original series like with the topoline it kind of feels 19th century right like we've discovered uh -huh. a new mineral and now we have to go seize the congo so we can mine it whereas yeah. next generation feels more like science is in a, is a, an erector set or it's one of those little scientific kits where you just rearrange the wires and now I've gone from lighting up diodes to making a buzzer sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we just need to like reconfigure how things work and then we can do whatever you want us to do. Exactly. But in the original so I, series, it's more like <laughs> you've got this like a whole different technology, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's stuff that a we don't see very much anymore in the next generation, or it's stuff that we yeah, like you say, is never seen again. So the avalanche works; it takes out uh, most of Mob's men. As uh, we go to commercial, well, that's how that com that commercial good break goes. Back to it, Mob and the Klingon have uh, survived with one other guy. Now, so then we get this moment here where uh, where Kirk is talking to McCoy and he says, uh, and they're talking about it, like she could have the baby at any minute. Kirk's like, uh, okay, yeah, we'll go to it. He's like, I don't know, they, you know, their biology may be different. I've never taken care of a compelling pregnant woman before. And then Kirk's like, oh, well, if you can't handle it, uh, yeah. all right, I'd rather have me do it than you. Which is funny because he <laughs> had that moment earlier in the show it's with fun. Spock, right? Where he does the same thing. Spock's like, of course I can do it. What are you talking about? Don't be crazy. So it's funny how he manipulates people twice in the same episode with the, with same, the same technique, yeah. Tactic, yeah. So uh, now they're climbing the mountain with a preg with the pregnant woman. Uh, Kirk and Spock both tried to uh, help her, but she will only let uh, she will only get touched by McCoy. Well, the doctor's like, I can't do this by myself. I'm a doctor, not an escalator. <laughs> Back on the ship, uh, they still uh, can't find the convoy. Scott is starting to get uh, suspicious, and he gets this hunch that maybe they've been duped. He listens to the distress call again. Ah, they used Enterprise, not any general distress call. It's a trap! But as you said, Uhura then says, uh, well, what, are you sure we should leave the convoy? What if it's real? So uh, they decide to hang around and uh, triple check to make sure. On the planet, they find a cave. Kirk uh, asks Bones, uh, how, do, how did you uh, get her to let you touch her? A happy pill? Bones is like, uh, no, a red cross. I don't remember that from the medical books. <laughs> to which McCoy replies, well, it's in mine from now on. <laughs> All right, buddy. So here's a little bit of motivation, but I don't think it's enough. Where she says, I hear the child belongs to the husband, which would now be Ma'ab, I guess. To which Bones is like, no, just keep saying to yourself, the child is mine. Okay, the child is yours, McCoy. No, no, no. I mean, say to yourself, the child is mine. The child is mine. <laughs> Meanwhile, Spock and Kirk uh, See, rig you, up. There you get like the hint of uh, some motivation not to want the child. Right. 
but they don't they don't develop it. So you're either left to put those pieces together on your own, or you're just going, why? Yeah. So meanwhile, Spock and uh, Kirk rig up some uh, bows and arrows. And there's another funny moment there where uh, Spock is like, the tension on these uh, on these uh, sticks are quite awesome. You can, you can make some like, bows out of these. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And then, and then Kirk, Spock's like, that's what I just said. Anyway, so Bones then comes out of the cave, and uh, we, get to, we, meet, we get to meet the baby. Then we get a little humor here with Spock not wanting to take the baby. Uh, then she says, McCoy, bring our baby over here. Spock and Kirk kind of look at each other, and Bones is like, <laughs> I'll explain it later. Well, he's got an interesting bedside manner, doesn't he? <laughs> he sure does. So now we're back on the ship. Uh, they decide it's time to leave, and they're going to warp five back to the planet. But on their way back, they then get a distress call from the Carolina. Scott decides he's going to ignore it. Uhura's like, wait, are you sure? And Scott says, uh, just put it in the log that it was my order. If something happens, you know, it's, uh, it's on me. Then we get uh, this, I feel like it's a recurring joke, not only in the show, possibly, but definitely in the movies. Where uh, Scott goes, yeah, there's an old saying on Earth. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And then Chekhov's like, I know that saying. It was created in Russia. <laughs> yeah. So and we get everyone, that, you know, a few times. Everyone seems to know it's a joke. Because Chekhov's yep. going, <laughs> and, yep. and Sula's like, oh. <laughs> So either everyone, like, cracks up at the drop of a hat, or they all... <laughs> Or they all well, know if the end of these, if the end of these episodes have taught us anything, is that people will laugh at the drop of a hat. They all know that Chekhov's joking. He's, you know, playing one of these. My tribe is better than your tribe games. Uh, back on the planet, Bones, I guess, is trying to sleep, or he's trying not to sleep. I don't really know what's going on there. But then Elaine, out of nowhere, decides she's going to knock Bones out with a rock, and she escapes. Lucky she didn't kill him. I know, right? Jeez. Maybe it's revenge for the slap. Spock and Kirk are keeping watch. Bones recovers them and tells them what happened, that he got knocked on the head. We're back on the sh uh, back to the ship, and a Klingon warship slows to their path. Red alerts everywhere as we go to commercial. Back at it. The tension is on. Uhura tries to call the Klingon ship, but it's not paying any attention. Scott says, it's drawing a line and daring us to step over it. On the planet, Mob has found uh, Kirk's cave. He agrees uh, with the Klingon and says that the law says that the humans must die. And I will also agree to your Klingon terms. Then Ileana shows up saying that she has already killed the humans. They believe her, because why not, right? A tiara isn't going to lie. All right, sounds good to me. Let's go. But the Klingon isn't having any of it. He says, no, I'm going to go look for myself, you fools. And he pulls a phaser out and he starts waving it at Ma'ab. Oh, is this your word? Yells Ma'ab. He's mad. Then all hell breaks loose. Kirk shoots a bow, shoots a bow at the Klingon. Uh, Spock kills a Capellian. Then Kirk kills a Capellian. Then uh, they throw their boomerang things. But luckily, Kirk and Spock step out of the way really easily. Then uh, Elian runs up to steal the Klingon's phaser. Oh no, but he gets it first. And then he tries to shoot Spock. Spock! Spock! 
Shannon, there's this very particular way of saying Spock that you like recognize forever and ever and ever. It's in all the movies and everything. Spock. All right. <laughs> then uh that's well, true. It's two yep. words. It's two syllables. Spock. Uh, then the Klingon kills one of Ma'ab's men. What is happening here? Elaine runs back to Ma'ab and the and the rest of the men, and, they, and they, she demands that they fight, but then they don't. Elaine then turns around and decides she's going to forfeit her life and head back to the tent. But now Ma'ab says, "No, I give you your life back." And then Ma'ab and his men attack. In sort of. A strange way. He yells, he walks up and he says, Klingon! And then is shot in the head with the phaser. Yep. So I think what he, what he decides is we need to attack twice. But instead of like two guys shooting, figuring he can only shoot one of us, the other one gets, you know, the kill, he decides I'm just going to be a decoy. Maybe he figures I'm going to go out with honor or. I have screwed this up so badly. I can't govern his tier. No one will trust me. You know, I'm going to have power struggles left and right. Frankly, I'm probably going to be assassinated the day after tomorrow. So right. I'm going to I'm going to fix this by getting myself killed here honorably, protecting the tribe. While Jerry here, who's one of the best shots, you know, in the tribe, is going to take that Klingon out with the spinny thing. That's my guess. But once again. I'm filling in some blanks. <laughs> and I see you. <laughs> you know, if this was a if this were a Disney musical, so that <laughs> would they just break okay, it? Okay, I'll follow you along this one. Go ahead. <laughs> would they just break into song for no reason? You'd have uh, so like the red shirt before him, this human must die. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All, all the Capellans would sing a cappella. <laughs> must die, must die. These humans must die. <laughs> They'd so sing a cappella. <laughs> yes, you're right. They'd have to. How could they not? <laughs> wow. What's even sadder is that I just thought of that after, you know, two days of like going over this episode. That was the first time I thought of a cappella. Anyway. But it was there when you needed it. Fair point, sir. Fair point. <clears throat> All right. Sure enough, the other acapellan, as we said, throws his boomerang thing and kills him with it, and it's over. Or is it? Kirk then throws aside the bow and arrows, but he keeps those daggers at the ready, doesn't he? Like walking down, it's in his hand. It looks like another fight may break out, break out when the cavalry actually does arrive. Scott and some red shirts come out with, uh, with some of the phasers. And that's it. And then Bones walks out with the baby. And Eliane runs up to him. And then Bone says, Uchi, Uchi, Kuchi, Ku. And then we get the joke about the linguistics. Then we're uh, back on the ship, aren't we? All of a sudden. Spock says, uh, or uh, Bones tells us that the child was named uh, Leonard James Akiar. Spock says, The child was named Leonard James Akiar. McCoy says, Yeah, has a nice ring to it, don't you think, James? Kirk says, <laughs> Yes, I think it's a name destined to go down in the galactic history, Leonard. What do you think, Spock? Spock says, <laughs> I think that both of you are going to be insufferably pleased with yourself for at least a month. 
sir. <laughs> and then the camera moves in as Shatner, and he inhales for a second. We get a Shatner-esque pause there. But I'm not sure if it's a Shatner pause or he just forgot what his next line is. It's like, uh... <laughs> a head warp factor one. Funny, I was like, oh, okay. And there we go. We are out of yet another episode. Of course, let's get to uh, the final tally on this episode. And surprisingly, even with a little bit of special effects, we did get a new uh, composer in to write some music for this episode. But even still, the total cost of this episode was $211,808, which equates to roughly $1.5 in 2003. So that means Friday's Child was $31,000 over budgets. It was Julie Newmar's wardrobe, wasn't it? Must have been, yeah. <laughs> so three episodes in and are now completed, and uh, season two now has a $76,000 deficit. After only and half of it in one episode. <laughs> yeah. Craziness, craziness. Uh, one other thing worth mentioning is that, again, don't forget that at this point now, Star Trek's on Friday nights, right? Uh, obviously, its fan base is usually out on Friday nights. Teenagers, right? Teenagers, their biggest fan base, are out on Friday nights doing whatever kids in the 60s did on uh, Friday and Saturday nights. Malt shop. Malt shop. That's right. We went over this before. I forget. Cruising. I've, I've read all about it in the Archie comics. <laughs> right? American Graffiti. We see a little bit of it there, too. They're driving yep. up and down yep. the strip. So, uh, of course, the show that keeps beating, have we talked about this before, the show that keeps beating Star Trek on Friday nights? Gomer Pyle. Gomer Pyle is beating Star Trek on its Friday nights. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Golly, 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 golly. It's winning from its 8.30 to 9 o'clock slot with a 43% share of the households. Star Trek in number two is only getting a 26% share, but at least it's number two. Dun, dun, dun. You got that great scene in American Graffiti where Opie and Hot and Solo <laughs> are going to do the drag race. Right. And of course, you know, Hans in that, what, 57 Chevy, which made the Kessel run and <laughs> well, part six. You know, I was disappointed to to speak about Han Solo just for a moment. Yeah, that the Kessel Run turned out to be this like super weird, irreproducible, you know, ping pong zigzag through some like weird space anomaly. Because it's right. not like you're like because you sit down with some guy and you go. This is the ship that made the Kessel run in, you know, 4.2 parsecs or whatever. Like, yeah, that's like a one-off. That's not going to help us get to Alderaan. <laughs> yeah. No, he's just saying that his nav, he's saying his nav computer is the best out there. That's what he's saying. Yeah, great. So if we've got to, like, slingshot through some weird anomalies, we're in good shape. But that was too weird of a situation to go... Oh yeah, that's a fast ship. That's like that's a ship that could do one weird trick, one time. No, it just means that his his navic computer knows the fastest route to Alderaan. That's what he's saying. At this point, I'd be I'd be happier going. My nav computer is Kate Blanchett. 
okay, I'm on board. I'll, yeah, fine. We'll figure out how to pay for it. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, that's it. Anything else you got to say? Did we cover it all? I think we covered it all. I think we got it. That's right. I guess this episode says something about sacrifice, I guess, sacrificing yourself. Yeah. Because a mob is the one who does it. It's just not That's the right. girl who, like, you think it's going to be. Yep. So awesome. The, the thunder got stolen from the character that was, you know, DC Fontana's main character to yep. apparently Roddenberry's pick. That's right. Mob. Well, uh, join us next week. We're going to be mourning Adonis next week. That's what we're going to be doing. Talking about thunderclaps and stuff. Whatever those crazy Greek gods are up to. Who mourns for Adonis? I don't know the answer. But we'll find out next week because it's another episode I haven't seen. Here we are like four episodes into season two. And I'm like, I don't know. Man, I'm, I'm I pretty sure I've seen a much right time. Now. You do? Yep, I remember it. Did it many times? Love it. Well, actually, not too long ago with Charlie. Perfect. Well, excellent. So uh, anyway, uh, y'all. What? Y'all. What am I doing? <laughs> Your M5 has taken What's over. That? Exactly. LL3 from uh, from Solo. So, hey, guys, join us next week for uh, some uh, more awesome Star Trek. It's going to be great. Uh, just like it always is. It's fun. We're having a good time. We're enjoying ourselves, and that's all that matters. Uh, you know, we're on the YouTubes. We're on uh, iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. I also forgot uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can find us on our website, uh, thebrotherstrekabout.com, because what else would it be called? <laughs> anyway, I'm Matt saying goodbye. Can you say goodbye now? Peace and long life. That's right. And I will see you all next week. Join in for the fun.